welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, Inspiring Centuries of Progress. A couple of years ago, the Academy began working with NYSERDA, a division of New York state government that deals with finding new energy solutions for the state, on a very tricky and very important problem. New York has some of the best research institutions in the world, many of whom have laboratories that are working on the kinds of problems that NYSERDA is interested in, how to generate, store, and distribute energy in new and better ways. But while all this research is generating some really amazing ideas, it wasn't often generating actual marketable products, things that the state's power utilities and others could actually buy and use. And so, how to bridge that gap? Here's Dr. Karen Pavese, an independent consultant who has been leading this project for the Academy. New York State has a tremendous amount of research and technology being developed, but we're not able to really recognize that return on investment, meaning getting it from the laboratories and the universities out to the marketplace. And so NYSERDA, New York State Energy Research Development Authority, specifically wanted to look at the energy um, sector of technology and put into place different mechanisms that could really help move this technology from the university out to the marketplace. And here's Jeff Peterson, Program Manager for Innovation and Business Development at NYSERDA. You know, how can I capture, you know, the entrepreneurial kind of excitement and enthusiasm uh, that we've seen in universities and in graduate students and help them focus their, their, their human capital on addressing some of our energy challenges? trying to transition that research that takes place uh, into viable business enterprises. And it turns out that this is a problem that many around the world are wrestling with, and one that stems from an intractable truth about how new businesses are started and new products brought to market in the 21st century. It used to be, back in the day, that almost all new technologies were originally developed either by the government, most often the Defense Department, or by one of a handful of large tech companies like GE, IBM, and Bell Telephone that had the resources to put buckets of money into research that was largely speculative. That is to say, only a small percentage of the ideas they developed would ever yield marketable products, but those that did ended up being really worth the investment. Here's William Bonvillian, director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Washington, D.C. office. These great large-scale industry laboratories used to be a way to prove out technologies and move them towards production, right? And the handoff was in under one roof in these large, deeply vertically integrated corporations. The most famous of these industrial research centers was the legendary Bell Labs in New Jersey, where over the course of about 100 years, they invented everything from the transistor to the laser to radio astronomy to the Unix operating system, winning eight Nobel Prizes along the way. As great as these mega labs were, though, the reason they were able to exist was because of something that most people don't think of as having a positive side at all. Trade monopolies. Having a particular industry, like telephones, on lockdown is about the only thing that can give a company the security and working capital it needs 
to make investments of that size into pure research. Here's Dr. Robert Strom, an economist who is currently a senior fellow at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. You know, as an economist, you like to say that monopolies are always evil. Uh, but, but a monopoly like Bell Labs was able to devote substantial resources uh, to, to research and development over the long term because they have the luxury of doing so. Uh, so so one, of the, one of the sort of side effects of deregulation, which I, I, as an economist, I think in general was good, uh, but it sort of reduced the importance of places like Bell Labs. Here's Mr. Bonvillian again. Those labs have now either disappeared or are in very sharp decline. So that mechanism for getting technology out is gone. Another mechanism for getting technology out used to be the Defense Department. Okay, So the Defense Department, historically, it would fund your development. It would fund your demonstration. It would fund your test bed. And it would pay for your product. In other words, it would create your initial market. It would buy it. If you happen to have a technology that fit into stuff they're interested in. Now, that's how IT came about, because the Defense Department had to have it. They had to have computing. All kinds of advances from DARPA, the internet itself came out of DARPA, right? So the Defense Department was the other big entity that kind of solved these technology stand-up problems. Of course, the Pentagon and large tech companies still put huge amounts of money into R&D. But more and more, they're all shifting their focus from long-term, high-expense research and following the same model as venture capital firms, which need to see a return on their investment relatively soon, within a handful of years. In terms of technology, this is fine when you're talking about software, which a person or a small team can basically develop on their laptops, or consumer electronics, which generally build on existing technologies, offering small improvements on devices that already have a waiting market of customers. It's different when you really need to build something new and do it in a new way. Particularly if it's something big, like the kind of energy innovations Nyserta is looking for. Inventing a totally new kind of generator or engine, say. Conceiving, designing, prototyping, and manufacturing something on that scale takes millions of dollars and a lot of time. The venture capital system is very much organized around the timetable to stand up a software technology. And that timetable is typically five to seven years of, su of support, really not much longer than that. Unfortunately, many technologies outside of IT don't fit that timetable. They take a lot longer, 10, 12, or more years. So venture firms are just not going to fund technologies with, the, with these longer pathways to initial production. They can't take that kind of risk. They're not organized to do so. So as a result, these firms fall into a gap in the innovation system, and that is a lot of different technologies. So that's why we're having to figure out these other approaches, right? But, you know, if we want to keep innovation leadership, it's really important that we figure them out. Because in the end, it's really these innovative new technologies that have the most potential to do the most good in the world. A new kind of solar panel or a low-emission truck engine can do a lot more to help people than a new smartphone app. But developing them is a lot harder and a lot riskier, so much less likely to get funded, even if you have a really good theory about how to make them work. 
So there's a lot of people in government and the nonprofit sector thinking about how to best get more of these kind of high-risk, high-reward projects off the ground. The solution to this problem that NYSERDA has invested in is to provide the funding to launch three of what are called proof-of-concept centers. Two that go together under the name PowerBridge, the first sponsored by a coalition including Columbia University, Stony Brook University, the Brookhaven National Laboratory, and Cornell's new New York City Tech Campus, and a second, which is a collaboration between the Polytechnic Institute at New York University and CUNY, the City University of New York. The third of these is called High Tech Rochester and is independent of any university, but is built to draw on talent from many of them upstate, including Cornell. The idea behind these centers is that they identify academic researchers, college professors and graduate students mostly, who have promising ideas about energy and clean tech that they're interested in turning into commercial products. These researchers then get the funding and training they need to found companies, startups, that have the wherewithal to develop those ideas to a stage where industry and venture capital can invest in them, where they can demonstrate that they're five years for market, say, instead of 10, 15, or who knows how many. Here's Dr. Pavese. You know, I think there's no one magic answer to how to move technology to the marketplace. If there was, people would obviously be doing it. Um, but I think it's been really recognized that having a robust network available to people working in technology is really important. And what I mean by that is oftentimes the person in the laboratory is an expert on the technology, but they have not necessarily ever taken a business class or have run a business or put together a financial plan or a business plan. And so these proof of concept centers really provide this sort of training um, for those in the, in the university, as well as provides this really robust network um, that's able to bring these skills and these expertise um, to the universities to really help facilitate that movement of technology out to the marketplace. And here's Mr. Peterson. At the beginning of the process, we have teams. We, teams are generally two more individuals who, who think they have a product and they want to start a business. So you would have typically a technical lead and an entrepreneurial lead. And uh, they, they apply to the program and they describe the technology and they describe uh, where they think the market may be and what it could take to get there. Your team is assigned a mentor. Generally, they're, they're experienced business professionals or serial entrepreneurs that are knowledgeable about you know, how to build a startup and how to make it work and how to get to some scale. At the end of the process, you know, if it works, we have a business. These centers are based on others that have been operating successfully for a number of years, the most established and best known of which are the Von Liebing Center at the University of California, San Diego, and the Deshpande Center at MIT. Here's Leon Sandler, the Deshpande Center's executive director. The really cutting-edge new technologies come out of um, university laboratories, and so it's important to really try and facilitate and accelerate the movement of those technologies so they're not just sitting in a lab somewhere, but they can actually make their way into real products and services that can improve the quality of life. And Despande, which has been active since 2002, has been doing this long enough that some of the companies it's spun off, all of which began as research projects being done by students and faculty at MIT, 
have begun to show real promise in the marketplace. One example is C2Sense, a company that makes digital sensors that pick up chemical signals from fumes in the air. These can, for instance, tell when produce has spoiled by the subtle gases it releases as it ripens. Here's Dr. Jan Schnorr, their chief technology officer, and one of the people who has been with the company throughout the process of going through the proof of concept center and launching. A lot of times it would be very helpful to have access to chemical information. For example, gases coming from fruit for food freshness, um, toxic gases in uh, industrial safety. So what C2 sends uh, develops are sensors that make it affordable to collect that information to provide better quality food, um, to avoid waste, uh, wasted food, and to protect workers in, in industrial settings. Now we just uh, recently hired our fifth employee. We got uh, we closed a seed round, a seed investment round, and now have runway for about a year, which is it's a very good situation for a startup. And on the technology side, we're making very good progress. So we'll have, uh, let's say, a beta uh, product out uh, probably in the course of next year already. Another successful example is Ambry, a company that has invented a new kind of large industrial battery that uses liquid metal to store energy. These are huge machines that run at temperatures of up to 500 degrees Celsius. So building them is no mean feat but their potential for use in an industrial power grid is enormous. Here's Dr. David Bradwell, their CTO. We raised uh, more than $50 million. Uh, we have uh, a couple facilities, one in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge Massachusetts, and then one out in Marlborough, Massachusetts. Uh, and we are developing this technology and uh, pushing it towards a commercial product. And both of these successful scientist-turned-businessmen will tell you that they could not have gotten their businesses off the ground without the support of a proof-of-concept center. Guidance from uh, folks that have been in industry that, that understand markets, um, aiding and helping uh, the discovery process to make sure that at the end of the day when we claim success and we, and we believe that we have something that works, that it's going to then become commercially relevant. It's not just something that's an interesting uh, paper in science or, or uh, in, in the academic literature that is actually relevant for society in, in, uh, through commercialization. This idea of thinking about the practical use of your research has traditionally been kind of rare in academia and often requires a sea change in the way that many scientists think about their work. Here's Dr. Pavese. There's just sort of a general um, culture change that can happen by having these proof of concept centers, which is having a university professor think about, hey, does this product meet a need? Does this technology meet a need out in the marketplace? And, you know, could we sell this or could we tweak this um, and make it a saleable, you know, product? And I think it has a real um, effect. The truth is that many scientists are reluctant to think about the potential commercial uses of their work at all. Like many fine artists, they worry about the purity of what they do, that the quest for knowledge for its own sake, like the artist's quest for beauty, will be compromised by thinking about applying that work to something in the marketplace. And in some cases, they're probably right. There's a kind of deep research that's incredibly important and has to be done entirely in the abstract. But there are other kinds of research that would greatly benefit from thinking about what their commercial applications might be, 
And centers like these can be a nudge to the scientists involved that it's okay. Here's the path to applying your work to real-life problems, and we'll help you along it in a practical step-by-step -step way. Here's Dr. Glenn Murfeld, External Technology Initiatives Leader for General Electric, and a board member on the NYSERDA Proof of Concept Center project. You know, when I was back in school, and, and I was working in the laboratories at university, and, and really learning how to develop new materials uh, and, and think about inventing, um, there was less emphasis uh, on creating that tie to, to customers. And so I, I think there's just such a, a big opportunity uh, in our sort of the way we train our scientists and engineers to, to inspire that, um, that reward system early on where that says, hey, it's terrific if, if you have a great idea. Do, do, you, do you realize there might be people out there that are looking for that exactly? Um, and, and I think it just adds another dimension in terms of how we educate our, our young inventors to think not only about how can you how can you break down barriers in technology, but how can you break them down and form them in a way that that creates perhaps new business opportunities um, for others. Um, and maybe a, a spectrum of of that discussion gets into sort of a realization that that I fought hard against for you know 25 years of my life in. in you know, when you're a technology person like I am, you sort of form your world around believing that technology can solve all, right? That's that's what you need. If you if you develop the best technology, that's the end. That's the end game. Uh, and I think what we've learned and I've learned um, over time is that that's sometimes necessary to have great technology, but it's certainly never sufficient. You have to have all these other constructs uh, to build around a great technology you know, like customer pull, like the economics of a good business model, uh, like a good marketing strategy. All those things are necessary in a way if, uh, if you have a great new energy technology, for example, that, that really can impact the world. If it, if it only resides in a beaker in the lab, um, you haven't fulfilled, you know, this ultimate goal. Hey, it's great to invent something cool and amazing that uh, hasn't been seen before, but it's, it's actually even cooler if you can take that technology and, and impact the world with it. And being part of a university, like most of these proof-of-concept centers are, allows them to be kind of a decompression chamber between the academic world and the business world, a place where a young company can prepare themselves for launch within the supportive environment that they're used to. Here's Mr. Sandler. So, you know, once things go into companies, then it does become a very competitive space. But we're sort of pre-competitive. At, at a high level, if you said, why do we do this at MIT? What's our motivation as a university? And what we like to say is, we do this for impact, not for income. So we see our mission as a university really as to um, bring new technologies to the world where they can do something useful. Deshpande and the other proof-of-concept centers that have been established for a while are really broad-minded about the kinds of projects they take on. While they tend to favor things that present serious engineering challenges, they can be in just about any field. These new NYSERDA centers, though, are different in that they are concentrating on a particular area of scientific inquiry, what's called clean tech, meaning 
basically ways to produce more energy with less pollution. Here's Mr. Peterson, followed by Dr. Merfeld. The, the challenges that are in front of us now really center around climate change and the impact of climate change on our environment. And that it that has driven the state to develop a fairly comprehensive state energy plan, which has our you know, greenhouse gas uh, reduction goals associated with it. Uh, we have uh, goals to try to deploy more renewable energy uh, technologies across the state. And, you know, the ultimate goal is to, uh, uh, you know, reduce the impact of, of global climate change and to uh, do that without uh, negatively impacting, you know, the consumer and ultimately could lead to uh, economic growth. Well, I think on the energy side, it's, it's just a tremendously exciting time, um, given what we're seeing in terms of renewable generation assets, the ability to deploy them not only in, in sort of a bulk fashion, but increasingly a lot, a lot of uh, maturation is happening around what does distributed generation look like. And what do um, what do the technologies that will enable that look like? And so this is this is beyond things like wind and solar technology, which are which are exciting. There's tremendous progress going on on those fronts as well. But it's the other technologies. It's like the semiconductor technologies that allow higher powers, better efficiency, faster switching times. Um, that combined with more intelligent control algorithms and dispatch algorithms that allow us to optimize uh, the trade-off between demand and generation. I, I think those types of technologies and really innovation around the business models associated with them are really exciting. So that's kind of on the energy side of things, and, and we're seeing incredible uh, volume of, of activity in that space. This is a particularly impressive and important space to be working in, because energy technologies are one of the most classic examples of that funding problem we spoke about earlier. They take a really long time and a lot of capital to develop, and so it's difficult to interest investors in funding them. But the rewards for getting them right are tremendous. Not just cleaner air and water, but also cheaper, safer energy for manufacturing and all the other people and businesses that depend on electricity, which is to say, all of them. Here's Dr. Strom, followed by Dr. Pavese. It's much more difficult to start and grow businesses that have what economists call spillover benefits or external benefits, because it's hard to capture those and price those in the market. Businesses that have purely private benefit that you can capture are easier to start, typically more lucrative. So some of those public benefit kinds of businesses generally require some sort of subsidy or assistance. And so and I think what NYSERDA is really adding here is a way of looking at something that will benefit not only New York, but the rest of the country in terms of uh, clean tech kinds of businesses that are, are costly to get started, are difficult to get started, and, and in the private sector, individual firms don't really have the incentive to do clean tech. And so in working with universities to, to take the, 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 um, uh, the research, the knowledge that's developed in, in clean tech and turn those, help to turn those into private businesses, I think is a, real, is a great use of public funds. If that project succeeds, I think it's going to be a real, uh, a real strong model uh, for, others, for others to engage in. The reason that we're getting so much great commitment from 
the advisory board we put together and um, help from people that we've asked is that focusing the proof of concept centers on energy is really um, a, a little more novel because there has been sort of the dearth of funding in this area because you really have to convince someone that you're de-risking, right, their their investment. So um, I do think part of, you know, doing this project in energy is kind of paving a new, a new pathway and sort of making a mark that, hey, New York State, you know, can do this. Now in their second year of operation, these three centers are already developing a wide range of interesting solutions to problems in this area. We're going to check in with these centers and the businesses they're spinning off in depth in a future episode of the podcast. But in the meantime, here's Mr. Peterson with a few examples. There's, you know, some work being done uh, to create uh, uh, films for, you know, windows to help manage uh, sunlight coming in and out of the windows uh, to reduce the energy load on a building. Uh, there's work being done to develop uh, uh, sensors for wastewater treatment that will make it more efficient to manage the wastewater treatment process. In that case, uh, there's work, you know, being done on energy harvesters that can take, you know, vibrations and turn that into energy, maybe for things like rail lines. Um, uh, there's work being done on, on biofuels. There's work being done on, uh, uh, you know, weather prediction or, or management tools around energy system management in buildings. So it, it really does run the gamut in this case, from fairly simple solutions perhaps to fairly complex, uh, you know, modeling work in chemistry. One of these three new NYSERDA centers, High Tech Rochester, is also different from existing proof-of-concept centers because it's not tied to a particular academic institution. In the past, these centers have functioned hand-in-glove with established university tech transfer offices and benefited greatly from the fundraising and administrative muscle that a major research university can offer. It remains to be seen if a center like this can stay viable as a standalone entity. Um, you know, there's three centers, two of which are based at universities, which is typically, you know, the model that has been used when you use the word proof of concept center. MIT had the Sponde Center, you know, San Diego had, um, you know, the Von Liebig Center, and of course there's others that have popped up now since the creation of those two. But the third center um, that is located in Rochester is not university-based. It's university-affiliated, meaning that all the universities in upstate can submit applications and be eligible for the funding. But the actual proof-of-concept center is not at a university. Um, and I think that that's another interesting thing to sort of follow um, as we sort of start to begin to measure uh, success, you know, two models side by side. So, you know, in the beginning of the program, you know, we characterized it as an investment in the establishment of proof-of-concept centers in New York State. And so each of these programs, these are $5 million contracts uh, set to last nominally five years. And uh, within each of the contracts, there, there's an obligation for the, the groups to come up with a sustainability plan. They're actually, we'll be working on that now, and we'll be, they will be presenting those plans, at least a draft version of those plans, to our advisory board at the end of January. So, I mean, the, the long-term hope is that a fairly structured or 
purposeful process to translate you know, research at the university or in the community uh, into you know, solutions for the clean energy marketplace continues when our fund- funding runs up. It's a little early to be able to actually tell um, a, a lot of success stories, but I think within the next year we'll be able to really look back and measure um, you know, how effective these programs um, have been, and that's another role that the Academy will play. All in all, though, there's a tremendous amount of initial support for these new centers from across the spectrum of the technology community, and hopes are high that their success will be long-lasting and substantial. Here's Dr. Merfeld. Being invited to, to help influence that and mentor some of that in, in part, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Um, if we can find a way to, to prosper our, our state and um, leverage the resources to create new jobs and you know, to inspire new startup businesses, that's, that's tremendous. That's, that's incredibly important, not only because I work for you know, a large industrial company that hopefully could, could help see to fruition the impact of those technologies at some point in the whole ecosystem. I, I think about it almost a little more personally, you know, as a, as a resident of the state of New York, it, it's a good thing to have smart people trying to start up new businesses and create, create new things here. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences, www.nyas.org. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative oversight by Diana Friedman. Special thanks to everyone who appeared in it, Dr. Karen Pavese, Jeffrey Peterson of NYSERDA, William Bonvillian and Leon Sandler of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Dr. Robert Strom of the Kaufman Foundation, Dr. Jan Schnorr of C2Sense, Dr. David Bradwell of Ambry, and Dr. Glenn Merfeld of General Electric.